You may be seated. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians 2. Our sermon text will be verses 1 through 10. Before we take a look at that passage, though, let's turn to our Heavenly Father once more in prayer. Our Lord God, our loving Father, our holy judge, our sovereign king, we come before you now just asking that you might speak to us through your word, your word which you have told us is living and active. We pray that indeed it might be so in us now. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive the seed of your word planted in our hearts, that it might grow and flower, that we might know you as you truly are, and that it might change us in ways we can't even imagine. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sermon text, Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10. Here now, the holy and inspired word of God. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised work also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You might remember that we mentioned at the very start of our sermon series as we we're going through the book of Galatians that, that this book, I said, has at times been referred to as the Declaration of Christian Independence. And I suppose that that has a certain way of resonating with us as Americans. Because, because we, 
in general, are big on independence. We like independence. We celebrate independence. We glory in independence. Culturally, we are very much a, a me-oriented culture. We have that kind of disposition about us. And I think that this sometimes causes us to see in a, in a little bit of a faulty way what our Christian liberty is really supposed to look like. I think it's shaded perhaps not in the way that we should see it. But today's text, I think, offers a corrective of sorts. It helps us better to understand that it centers on the gospel. And Paul, as he, he speaks of the gospel, he, he, he does so as, as he often does right here. And, and as an outline of, of where we're headed today, I, I want to look at first the content of the gospel, and secondly the freedom of the gospel, and then finally the implications of the gospel. In verse 1, you'll note that Paul says, After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. And it's important that we have a little bit of background here. Paul, to the best of our knowledge, as we look through the scriptures, made, made four different trips to Jerusalem. Uh, the first of which uh, was after his conversion. It's described in Acts chapter 9. And on this trip, Paul introduced himself to Peter and to James. We actually looked at this one back uh, in chapter 1, didn't we? It was chapter 1, beginning of verse 18. It talked about, he made reference to this trip that he made. Remember where he, he met Peter and he met James and uh, talked to them. And so that's the first trip that he took there. The second trip that he took is mentioned in Acts 11, beginning of verse 28. And in that trip, Barnabas and Paul uh, go from, from Antioch and they bring relief funds uh, for famine relief to Jerusalem, to the church there, uh, so that the church, which was, which was poverty-stricken, might be able to have the finances that, the, that they need for the people therein to live. A third trip described in Acts 15 is between his first and second missionary journeys. And on this trip, Paul goes up and he, he meets with the apostles and they, they discuss his doctrine and, and, and the doctrine of, of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. The idea that circumcision is not needed to be added on to that doctrine in order for one to be saved. Then a fourth trip, which is at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, is recorded in Acts 21. It's referred to in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, and, and Paul and others once again gathered a contribution for the needy of Jerusalem that he might be able to help them. Now, commentators debate, as we look at what he's talking about here in today's text in chapter 2 of Galatians, which trip exactly he's referring to. Some of them say it's, it's, it's got to be that second trip, that second trip where he came and, and brought to the people in the church in Jerusalem this financial relief, this aid for the poor. Others say, well, no, it, it deals so clearly with the topic of 
uh, Acts 15, this, this conference, as it were, that they had where they discussed whether circumcision was necessary. And, and commentators are kind of divided on it. And, and it's an intriguing topic for Bible scholars to debate. But for our purposes this morning, I, I guess it's probably not all that important. If I had to guess, I'd probably lean ever so slightly toward his second trip, the one where he brought famine relief, but many, many people far wiser than me would disagree on that and say the other. I'm pretty much a coin toss as to which one I think it is. But, but we see that whichever time it was, Paul went to Jerusalem. And verse 2 tells us it was because of a revelation. And he set before them the gospel that he proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure he's not running in vain. Remember that the gospel that Paul proclaimed was not some second-rate gospel, right? This is not, not the gospel to the Gentiles, which isn't quite as good as the gospel to the Jews. He's making it very clear so far in Galatians that this is the gospel, it's not a second-rate gospel. He's not a second-rate apostle. That was what some of the, his opponents had argued, right? This Paul guy, not really a real apostle. He's not at the same level as, as the big guys, right? As Peter and John and James. He's, he's kind of just a pseudo-apostle. And so his message, eh, can we believe it? Maybe, maybe not. But Paul says, no, that's not the case. He comes before these people that they accepted as being the apostles, these people that, that, that his opponents thought to be influential. That's why he says it that way. He says they seemed influential. It's not that he's saying that they weren't influential, but no, he's saying, you, you my opponents, even admit this. They say that they are influential. They are. And so he says it actually four times in this passage, right? He says it here in, in verse 2 that they seem to be influential. Two times in verse 6 that they seem to be influential. And in verse 9, they seem to be pillars of the church. He's strongly implying here that, that he was of the same level as they were. That he was an apostle just like them. He, he wasn't just, as the Judaizers might have suggested, a, a junior apostle that had been called to the main office by the bigwigs, right? They, they hadn't beckoned him and said, you know, come on here, Paul, we need to check you out. We need to, we need to kind of do a review of what your, your work is so that we can give you the stamp of approval and you can keep on going. No, he's, he's saying that's not it. I wasn't beckoned by them. I went up, verse 2 says, because of a revelation. He's saying that God directed him to come. The idea is he doesn't answer to Peter, James, and John. He answers directly to the risen Christ Jesus, the one who had met him on the road to Damascus, the one who had taught him and had proclaimed his gospel to Paul that Paul might proclaim that gospel to the Gentiles. So we have a question. What exactly is that gospel that Paul proclaims to the Gentiles as mentioned in verse 2? Well, we've covered that some in 
in the past few weeks, haven't we? But we come back to it again today, and we will come back to it again in the future, and we will come back to it time and time and time again, because this is absolutely central to who we are as a church. I mean, there's lots of great things that go on at Calvary. Probably lots of things go on at many churches. I mean, people, people give time and ability and money and people, people do these things and we, we as a church can help those who are less fortunate than us and we can study the Bible together and we can sing together, whether it's in the choir or whether it's just all of us in worship. We can pray with and for one another. We can fellowship with one another. We can work together. We can encourage one another. We can enjoy one another's company. We can play softball and volleyball and we can serve with one another. We can work on the beautification of the grounds and, and, and we can go on trips and activities with one another and we can share in life with one another and so much more. But you know what? All of that is fine, but if it's not grounded in and centered on the gospel, then we are not a church. We're just a social club. And there's nothing wrong with social clubs. Social clubs are fine. They can be wonderful things. They can be wonderful benefits to the community at large. But the church is not a club. The church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the vanguard of Christ's kingdom. And one of the primary things that sets the church, apart from a club, is the gospel. And in a world where the gospel is often misconstrued, often misunderstood, often misrepresented, it's important that we, we go back and constantly remind ourselves not just of the gospel's centrality, but of its content. And so we return once more to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. You see, he says that, that central to the gospel is the idea that Jesus lived and died and rose again. And this was not just a figment of anybody's imagination. He appeared to over 500 people. And, and in essence, he's saying at this point, you can go talk to them. Here they are. Get their word on it. This actually happened. He didn't just raise in our, rise in our hearts. He rose from the dead. Physically, visibly, actually there. And if he rose from the dead, then that vindicates what he has said, that he indeed died not just because some people had killed him, but he died because he laid down his life for our sins. And so we must trust in him. We must trust in him for salvation because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. These Reformation 
principles that we will celebrate here in a couple weeks for Reformation weekend, right? The, the idea that Christ alone is our Savior. It's not Jesus plus tradition that saves us. It's not Jesus plus good works that saves us. It's not Jesus plus anything that saves us. It is Jesus who saves. And what the reformers were fighting back during the Reformation was the idea that it was Jesus plus that saves, right? The same thing that Paul was fighting. They thought it was Jesus plus cultural tradition. Jesus plus extra works. And the reformers came, just as Paul had before them, and said, no, it is Jesus and him alone who is our Savior. We need to remember, too, in our day, in our time, in our context, that it is Jesus alone who saves, not Jesus plus our traditions, not Jesus plus our works, not Jesus plus anything. These things might be very good things. They might be wonderful things, things that we, we want to have, things that we enjoy having, things that, that are encouraging and wonderful things, but our identity is not found in them. Our identity is found in the one who is our Savior, Christ Jesus the Lord. And that is the content of the gospel that, Jesus, that Paul preached. Let's look, too, at the freedom of the gospel. Let me look at the content of the gospel, the freedom of the gospel. It's, it's a freedom in multiple ways. There's freedom from, from sin and judgment and death, and what a wonderful blessing that is, right? There's freedom from sin and judgment and death because Jesus has died for us. And, and he has freed us from the penalty that was rightly ours. He has freed us from the judgment that should have come against us. He has freed us from our bondage to sin. We, we no longer need to go on sinning. But we can walk in holiness through Christ Jesus. I, I, I think of what a wonderful thing it is. I think of our, our, our brother Andrew Brunson, right? When he was imprisoned in Turkey. And, and, and for two years he spent languishing there imprisoned but then finally he got to come home he was freed he was no longer imprisoned he had freedom and there was a joy we we celebrated and and this year this summer when I went to our general assembly he spoke there and and it was a massive celebration we we resonated with joy because our brother who had been enslaved and imprisoned there was now free. And we should rejoice too. Because, because our enslavement to sin, our imprisonment to sin and to death and to the judgment that stands against us is every bit as real apart from Christ Jesus as was the imprisonment of Andrew Brunson. But our freedom is every bit as real in Christ Jesus too. And so we should celebrate. We should, we should rejoice because we are no longer held captive by death. I think of words that Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 15 from what we read earlier in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. 
for the perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. What a, what a wonderful truth. We all hate death, don't we? We hate death. It's, it's our, our enemy. It is an evil, terrible thing. What a wonderful thing when it will one day be swallowed up in victory. Paul goes on, he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's not just sin and death that we are set free from, although that is a wonderful thing in and of itself. We are also set free from the power of the law, from the, the cultural standards and traditions and legalisms that, that bound us, right? And we see in verse 3, Paul says, even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. You'll remember that, that, that the idea was this symbol of circumcision was a cultural marker. It was a, a legal marker. It set apart those who were Jews. And the idea was the, the Judaizers thought that you had to become Jewish in order to become Christian. And, and he's saying, no, we are set free from those standards. I love what John Barclay has to say about it. He says, most ge modern Gentile readers who have never been socialized to consider the foreskin a sign of inferior otherness or repulsive disgrace generally fail to register the shock of this oxymoronic expression, the good news of the foreskin, constitutes a stunning challenge to the system of valuation operative in Jewish culture. You see what he's saying? He's saying their entire way of thinking was being turned on its head. It was being turned upside down. He, the, their whole way of life and seeing the world is being changed. It's not a matter of keeping the law in order to earn the pleasure of God. Instead, it's a matter of having already received the pleasure of God, though we had not earned it. And we can live in the freedom of knowing we don't need to do more and more and more. We don't need to worry, have I done enough? Have I met the standard? Have I accumulated enough points? Because you'll never accumulate enough points. But Jesus has. And so there is a freedom in him. A freedom from that law. Jesus alone frees you. And our hearts should be changed by that. right? Our hearts should be changed. We should be given new affections. Which, which should lead to new actions. Because the law is no longer a burden. Right? Verse 4, Paul says, because false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. They, they wanted to take away the freedom that Paul and, and Titus and the Gentiles and the Galatians and you and me, they wanted to take away that freedom. Now, they, of course, didn't see it that way. They, they thought they were just trying to be, be, be more holy, more, more righteous. But, but that's how legalism does things, right? In, in an effort to become more holy, it actually takes away the freedoms that we rightly have. It sets itself up as the arbitrator of righteousness above God. And it says, I know God says this, but, but this is what I say. And listen to me instead of God. You see how there's a, a perverse idolatry in that. A, 
perverse idolatry of self in setting oneself up above God, saying that you must do this on top of what God says to them, he says in verse 5, we did not yield in submission even for a moment. And I think this is really important. Paul says we did not yield to them even for a moment. He says we didn't give them any ground. We didn't back down. But he doesn't say to them we didn't yield even for a moment because my freedom was at stake. No, that's not what he says, is it? Right? He doesn't say, because I deserve to be free, so we didn't give up any ground at all. No, that's not what he says. What does he say? No, it's because the gospel was at stake. It's because the gospel was at stake, and the glory of God was at stake. We did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, Paul is... Paul isn't giving up any ground in the exercise of his freedom, not so that he can be happy and do what he wants to do, but rather so that others might benefit. Right? Luther puts it this way, I love this. He says, the issue before us is grave and vital. It involves the death of the Son of God, who by will and commandment of the Father became flesh, was crucified, and died for the sins of the world. If faith yields on this point, the death of the Son of God will be in vain. And it's only a fable that Christ is the Savior of the world. Then God is a liar, for he has not lived up to his promises. Therefore, our stubbornness on this issue is pious and holy. For by it we are striving to preserve the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to keep the truth of the gospel. If we lose this, we lose God, Christ. All the promises of faith, righteousness, and eternal life. You see, often I think we, we often exercise our freedoms and our, our rights because we're concerned about us, right? I want this because I want this. And I have a right to this, and so you can't tell me I can't have this. But that's not the mindset that he's commending. Certainly not the mindset Jesus had, is it? For Jesus set aside all that was rightly his. He set aside his glory. He set aside his place in heaven and took on human flesh. He entered into his creation and did so as a human being. He even suffered the indignity of death and the most indignant kind of death at that he didn't demand his rights rather he set them aside because he was most concerned about us and so really that's the the prime factor in deciding whether or not we should exercise our freedoms whether we should exercise our rights whether we should demand them isn't so much whether we want them but rather will they benefit others and bring glory to God Quickly now as we come to a conclusion, what, what are the implications of the gospel? Well, first, I think one of the implications of the gospel is a universal proclamation, right? The people of God that he has called apart for his own, he does not intend to be a small, specific, social, cultural, cultural group. 
He expects it to be people from all around the world, of every people group, of every language, of every, of every social and cultural group. So in verse 7 it says, when they saw I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, He said, just, because, just like the gospel was supposed to go out to the Jews, so it's supposed to go out to the rest of the world. Because Jesus had lived and died and rose again, because he lives now and reigns over all of creation, because he is coming again to make all things new, because he has abolished the dividing wall of hostility, the gospel should go forth to all people, not just some people, not just most people, to all people. And that's why we as a church should be committed to international missions. Why that should be a part of what we're doing. You might say, but why, why are we concerned with those people on the other end of the world? Why do we care about that? Why don't we? We've got problems here. Yes, we do have problems here. But the reality is everyone needs to hear the gospel. And so we're committed to that. And so it's my hope and my dream and my prayer that we would as a church more and more grow in our commitment to that fact. That we would look to take the gospel to all the ends of the earth. That would be a hallmark of our church. Further, one of the implications of the gospel is unity in the Bible. Verse 9, James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. See, see, they, they realized that there was a different mess, a mission that, that these people were taking. But they still belonged together. They gave them the right hand of fellowship, right? Because, because we have a different mission from one person to another, but we have the same message, right? And so they take it to different places, to different, different parts of the kingdom, to do different parts of kingdom work. But there's a unity. We're all bound together, you see, because... because because as members of one body, we all have different functions, right? Just like in your body, right? The, the ears hear, right? The hands do things, feet do things. Everything that's a part of your body does something. And it's all different. But they all work together in unity with one another. And so it is within the body of Christ. And so we should work together with, with one another here, yes, but also with a church down the street and a church across town and a church across the ocean. For they are brothers and sisters in Christ, committed to the glory of God and to the advancement of his kingdom. Finally, one last implication of the gospel, generosity to the poor. Verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. He's likely referring here to the poor in Jerusalem, in the church primarily. That's what he's probably referring to. And, and in his second visit, right, he, he was bringing financial assistance to them. That's part of the reason that I, if I had judge one or the other, that's where I'd lean on, on which visit this was. But, but we'll see later in Galatians that, that as we have opportunity, Paul urges us to do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, so we look first to help those who are members of the household of faith, but it goes beyond that. It's not just there. We should reach out to those in our community and, 
and, and share God's love with them, not only in the message of the gospel, but also through the love of the gospel that is necessarily an implication of it. Right? The early church was marked by this kind of, kind of kindness. In, in, in that world, in that day, there were, there were babies that were born and thrown on the trash heap and left behind, and, and members of the church would take them in and adopt them and raise them as their own. In, in the days of the, the bubonic plague, right, people would be, would be sick and dying and nobody would care for them because they didn't want to get the plague. But the Christian church was known as those who would take these people in and, and care for them and love them and, and, and tend to them even as they were dying. Because there is a love for the poor and the helpless that must mark the church. For we were poor and helpless and Jesus loved us. So let us be marked out as those who have been shown mercy as we show mercy to others. It's interesting, isn't it, that James was one of the people in this discussion. And James tells us that religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world, right? to help those who were left in helpless situations. That's what happens when we understand the content of the gospel. That's what happens when we understand the freedom of the gospel. And that's what happens when we understand the implications of the gospel. And that, I pray, is what is happening with us. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray that indeed that would be the case. Make us more like Jesus. Make us more like Jesus that, that as people look at us, they might see him. That the beauty of the gospel would shine so radiantly in and through us that people would be brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. May Calvary Presbyterian Church have a reputation that is growing and developing and more and more being a place that loves well because we have been loved well by you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.